the book this morning. But first, let me explain the nature of how John wrote. John sets forth a very orderly account of the events of the life of Jesus. The order is indicated by the stages of actions that he discusses, talks about, writes about. And they're marked off by the development of the narrative. And the stages are as follows. There's a prologue, the first 18 verses of chapter 1. The prologue merely means a word before. Before he gets into talking about uh, uh, the life of Christ. Alright, then he presents in chapter 119 through the fourth chapter 54, verse 54, a period of consideration when Jesus was considered by the Jews as to who he was. And there was a beginning of the Lord's miracles. And then there's a period of controversy when the Jews got into argumentation. Uh, and discussing who he might be. And then there's followed that with the controversy was the period of conflict. They came up against him because he didn't agree with their democratic way of thinking. And then there's a period of crisis uh, that the book will reveal. And then a period of conference when Jesus uh, confers with his disciples before he leaves the earth. And then there's a period of consum uh, consummation uh, when he's crucified. And then there's the epilogue in the 21st chapter, which is merely a word after. Prologue is a word before. Epilogue is a word after. And that's the nature of John's gospel. And that's the way we will consider it in our study. And so this morning we're going to begin with the prologue. And I have that outlined over here if you'd like to get a hold of this for your own study. Uh, the prologue presents these things. The Word, or the Logos, and Deity. The Word and creation. The Word and life. The Word and the world in these verses. The Word and men. The Word incarnate. It became flesh. And the Word revealing. All right, I think that's enough said in an introductory way about the Gospel of John. And so let's go into the prologue here. This particular section presents two persons, the Word and John the Baptist. And we're, uh, so, uh, let me give you the scriptures in this prologue, in the 18, first 18 verses, that speaks of Jesus and also John. Now concerning the Word, uh, uh, let me see how I should present that. All right, verse 1 through 5, verse 9 through 14, and verse 16 through 18 concern the Word. <coughs> Verses 6 through 8, and verse 15 concern John the Baptist. Alright, as we begin in the first chapter, verse 1, we see the term Logos. Uh, in the beginning was the word, the Logos. And, the, uh, it, well, Logos is translated there in your translation, word. In the beginning was the word. And this implies the intelligence behind the idea. It's not speaking of just one word like it or the or an or uh, marvelous or anything. 
it involves the whole entirety. Uh, in the Greek, it speaks of the intelligence behind the idea. All right, and the transmissible expression of it. It's been transmitted to you and me, this logos, this word. In fact, uh, to verify that, look at Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3. Here this word has been transmitted and expressed to us by the Lord. Paul said, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, the Logos, the Word, whom he appointed heir over all things, by whom also he made the world. And he, the Son, being the express image of the, per of, of the personage of God, after he had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so God deals with us through the Logos, through the Word, the one that become incarnate, the word that traveled from heaven in humility to this earth and humbled himself to the cross. All right, so in understanding the word, uh, the Logos was one of the purest and most general uh, concepts of that ultimate intelligence, reason, and will that is called God. And so the Logos, or the Word, uh, is the ultimate intelligence, number one. It is the reason, number two. And it is the will that is called God. And so the Logos, or the Word, is the, uh, is the intelligence behind the idea that's revealed unto you and I through the word. Um, and we're going to jump the gun a little bit here. Look at verse 14. This word that we're looking at here in verse 1, what happened to it? It became flesh and dwelt among us as the Son of God, full of grace and truth. All right. John speaks of the word in regard to eternity. Uh, and that's the first predicate of the Logos. He says, in the beginning... <coughs> The beginning of what? This phrase in the beginning essentially is the same as that in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. So the expression does not refer to the beginning of some particular process, but a definite uh, localized point in time but rather to the definite eternity which precedes all time. In other words, the immeasurable past. So here we have eternity. We'll put it over here. And everything we're going to read after that statement in the beginning speaks of what was created and what existed and the reasons why and wherefore from that point on. God took a little piece of eternity called time. And that's what we're created in. Period of time. And uh, the proverb writer, uh, he'll tell you about it in the first uh, chapter 3, I think it is. He'll tell you the whole chapter will deal with time. There's a time to be born, time to die, time to laugh time to cry, a time for war, time for peace. And he goes through all of the times of men in their experiences of what God placed him in. 
Now you and I need to appreciate the fact that we cannot understand eternity. There just ain't no way we can get a hold of it. Eternity is a word that declares that there's no beginning and no end. We can't understand that because everything that we're associated with <coughs> has time. Time to be born, time to die. Uh, well, you can read those times in there. It is Proverbs, the first chapter, isn't it? I think it is. <laughs> we wonder about a lot of things that we'll never understand until we get on the other side of life. But we wonder, how can there be a situation where there's no <coughs> beginning and no end? Well, can, can your uh, finite mind understand that? No, because you're not infinite. If you was infinite, you could understand it. But then you'd be on equality with God, wouldn't you? Knowing all things. So in the beginning, So this word beginning uh, is not talking about some particular process uh, or a definite localized point in time, but rather to the infinite eternity which preceded all time, the immeasurable past. There was a time when it began, and that's all we need to know about it because that's all that's revealed about it. Yeah. Uh, Dad, I think he was looking for Ecclesiastes, the third chapter. Okay. On the I said Proverbs, didn't I? Yeah, I didn't think that right. Ecclesiastes, the third chapter. If you want to go home and read that. The logos here, or the word, cannot be said to have come into being at any given <coughs> moment. Because he always was in the beginning was the word the logos in Genesis uh, 126 going back to the Old Testament and God said let us make man in our image have you ever wondered who the us is in the very beginning of the Bible, there's more than one, is my point. Now, the Bible will continue to reveal the truth about this us, and we know that us is basically three <coughs> personages God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're not going to go into that this morning, except to recognize that in the beginning was when God said, in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. And so there's more in the Godhead than just one. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 22. And Jehovah, God said, behold, the man has become as one of us. See the us there again? Who's he talking to, himself? No, he's talking to the other two of the Godhead. Uh, <clears throat> let us go down and there confound their languages. That's when they were building the Tower of Babel. But the point we're looking at is the us here. There's more than one in the Godhead. Now we've studied this before and we know that the word God is not a name. It's not an individual personally, personally named. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, God the Father, as he's been revealed to us as a father, is God. So all three are God. And let me explain it this way in case you're having difficulty with it. The Howard, the, the name Howard, it doesn't designate Dad Howard or 
son Howard or daughter Howard or wife Howard. It merely describes the family. It is a family name. God is a family name. Uh, theos or theob in the Greek, either one. One's plural, one's not. But nevertheless, there's three that makes up the Godhead. And so when you're speaking about God, you have to ask, you, the text has to tell you uh, what are you talking about? You're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Because there's three of them. Have you ever found it strange that Paul in his writings sometimes deliberately separates them to show you the, the nature of the Godhead is made up of three? He'll talk, he'll, he'll introduce his uh, writings sometimes with this idea from God the Father and the Son the Holy, and the Holy Spirit. They're all God. And so, I don't know how the world gets got that concept, but the whole world seems to be drenched in this idea that God, oh God, and then Jesus, he's down here kind of like a second lieutenant under a captain. And then the Holy Spirit, he's down there as first sergeant. And we know the teaching in the Bible that they're one. There is no elevation of one above the other. In Zechariah 13 and verse 7, <coughs> the will and the word of God broke the silence of that day with a never-to-be-forgotten cry. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the one that is my fellow. You read over in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus explained that as what happened at the crucifixion. God unsheathed his sword of justice against his own son. But he spoke there of his son being the sacrifice as his fellow. In the Hebrew, the word fellow means equal, shoulder to shoulder. No difference at all. And that just, I think that needs to be pointed out every now and then because of the confusion that's been brought on the man by this concept, particularly the Catholic religion. Butch? Uh, I'm not sure exactly where it is, but the I've read the first seven chapters this morning, and even the Jews realize that because they accused him of, of uh, putting himself on equality with God when he was saying, I am the Son and Father sent me. Yeah. So even the Jews understood that he was he was putting himself on equality with God. That's what the word fellow means. And that's what God said. Awake, O sword, that sword of justice that awoke itself, unsheathed itself on the Son of God at Calvary. And Jesus quoted that very verse to explain to us that what God was talking about was his sacrifice at Calvary. God unsheathed his sword of justice. Justice was satisfied at Calvary. Sin was paid for at Calvary. Every sin that's ever been committed or ever will be committed has already been paid for. To enjoy it, well, naturally, you have to be born into the family, don't you? Otherwise, you're not a recipient of those blessings. To lay hold on salvation is to be born into the family of God. And uh, there's where you enjoy that situation. <coughs> I think that's all I want to say about that. Uh, John 8 and verse 54. And also, ex, along with Exodus 3, and verse 14, John says, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. That statement in the Hebrew and in the Greek designates a unique position, a position of not having a beginning, and not having an end. Always is, always was, always will be. 
It's only made twice in the scriptures, this I am statement. God made it when Abraham uh, was commissioned by God to go down and talk to Pharaoh and tell him, let my son go, as he spoke of uh, the Hebrew people. They were God's sons. That's the way he viewed them. And he was commissioned to go down there. And naturally, uh, not Abraham. Moses. And Moses asked God, Well, whom shall I tell Pharaoh that sent me? Uh, who, who sent me? And he said, You tell him the I am sent you. Pharaoh understood exactly who that was talking about. Someone who always was, always will be, always has been, the eternal one. So Jesus declared unto them, I say unto you before Abraham was, I am. He's eternal, isn't he? Well, where does a Jehovah Witnesses get off claiming he, he didn't have existence until Bethlehem? You see how stupid their argument is? They haven't even read the scriptures. All you got to do is read the scriptures and indelve them on this gray stuff up here in, in this cavity. And you'll never forget it. You'll always remember it. And you'll know that he is an eternal one. He's, he wasn't created. So the next time the Jehovah Witnesses come by, uh, if you can't remember the verse uh, or the statement, just smile at them and let them go on. If you can, show it to them. That along with many other passages that declares uh, the everlasting nature of this logos. In John 14, no, John 17, 5, John says, uh, he quotes Jesus, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee from the beginning, before the world, excuse me, before the world was, excuse me. And then look at verse 24, the last part of verse 24. <coughs> For thou lovest me when? Before the foundation of the world. Is Jesus an eternal being? <laughs> yes, he is. You read in Philippians 2, 5, it's not in our lesson, but if you want to go there, Paul tells you in Philippians that Jesus was on equality with God the Father, and the fact that uh, he humbled himself and emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. Now let me make this clear. Don't be guilty of saying that he emptied himself of his divinity, because he did not. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. There's a difference. I'm not going to argue it this morning, but I want you to recognize the difference. Now, I'm not trying to get on anybody, but I have heard that statement in this congregation that, <laughs> that he uh, emptied himself of his divinity. He did not. He was divine all the time. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. He said on one occasion, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because it's the word of my Father that sent me. And we've discussed that before. The way the Bible is revealed, we have to assume That some point in time, or maybe before time, probably before time, the Godhead had to sit down and discuss their purpose. We read in Ephesians 1, 4, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. He made a choice in regard to us before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That was his plan. 
so what's been revealed here is a father, a son, and the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered why? One of them had to be the father. And incidentally, God created fatherhood, didn't he? I wonder if there's any uh, parallel there. <laughs> there certainly is. Uh, there's the One had to be the father. Here's three. One of those three had to be the father. One of those three had to be the son that came down and revealed and, and manifested what he did according to the scriptures. And one had to be the Holy Spirit, which would be the revealer of that through the word. There was three works to be done. Three positions to be held. And with the Godhead, there's no disagreement. Uh, they're in perfect harmony with one another. So there wasn't an argument over who's going to be what. But there was three in the Godhead. One decided to be the son and make the sacrifice. The other decided to be the father that hovered over this plan. And the other one is a revealer of it. And so God planned it. That's what the Bible reveals to us. God planned it. Jesus executed it. And the Holy Spirit revealed it. It's a done deal. It was a done deal 2,000 years ago. There is no latter day revelation. God does not speak to men today. He doesn't change His mind. He, hasn't, he doesn't have anything new to reveal to us. Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that's called us to glory and virtue. Do we have it? Do we have all things? That's what that verse said. All things. Not some things, not part things. The Jehovah Witnesses come along. Uh, excuse me, the Mormons. And they say, oh, well, we didn't have all things. See, we got this latter-day revelation. Latter-day revelation? 2,000 years after Christ, they're claiming <laughs> that Joseph Smith got latter-day revelation. <laughs> Paul, Peter said 2,000 years ago, at that time we already had all things that pertain to the life and the godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to glory and virtue. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, all script, he said this 2,000 years ago before Joseph Smith was ever born. All scriptures inspired God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, or instruction in righteousness, to what intent? That the man of God may be complete. Are we complete? Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so we have everything we need. It's been sealed and certified. That's why Jesus raised up on the cross and cried out, It is finished. Because it was finished. There wasn't no latter day revelation or any of that. I think we get the point, don't we? And so, on that note, we'll move on here in our study. <laughs> in Psalms 90, in verse 2, the psalmist said, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even, uh, or ever thou hast found, founded the earth <coughs> and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He's an everlasting being. Speaking of the Son as God. Now, look at Micah in the Old Testament that verifies this very statement. Micah 5 and verse 2. Micah 5, verse 2. 
But thou, Bethlehem, Ephraim, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of these shall one come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. I just want to show you that uh, regardless of where you read, Jesus is declared to be everlasting. He didn't have a beginning at Bethlehem of Judea. We're in a time zone right now called Christmas where there's mention of Jesus being born. Well, we don't know when he was born, uh, so that's all fake. <coughs> and, uh, we rejoice that he came to this world, yes. Uh, but the point is, uh, when Jesus was born, he existed before he was born. Philippians 2.5 says that he humbled himself. Paul says, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not a thing of equality or a robbery to be equal with God. So here he is equal with God. And he didn't say that, see that as being a robber that's going to hold on to his booty. He's willing to give it up. And so the writer says he humbled himself and emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, and he became a man. And so these verses just show the eternity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Logos is being discussed in John's Gospel, in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God, the Word was God. And that's the point we've been looking at so far, is scriptures that verify that very fact, that he's eternal. He didn't find his existence in a manger on, uh, in Bethlehem of Judea. Because even the passage that said that he'd be born in Bethlehem of Judea declared that he'd be the ruler, the everlasting one. And again, that Hebrew word there, it designates no beginning, no end. Always was, always is, always will be. And that's why only Jesus and only God the Father made the claim in two different places that they were the I Am. When God, again, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, he said, Whom shall I say, tell sent me? You tell that fellow, the I am sent you. And Jesus in his gospel. The Jews laughed at him because Jesus told them, you know, Abraham would rejoice to see my day. And they laughed. They said, why, you're not even 50 years old yet. You, you, you claim Abraham would rejoice to see my day? And he explained to it very carefully. Before Abraham was, I am. And so he is the I am, the always, ever-present, always has been, always will be, the everlasting. So the word God does not denote a numerical value, nor is it a name, but it's a title of attributes. And that's the way you'll find it in the dictionary if you look it up, in any dictionary. It has God, the word God, Theoph in the Greek, has three attributes. All power, all knowledge, and ever present. That is the nature of divinity. We don't have that, do we? We've been promised it, uh, but we don't have it yet.
Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm still dealing with the logos. Uh, so, personally, uh, the second affirmation in John's Gospel is that of eternal uh, personality. Because it says in verse 1, And the Word was with God. It existed with God before the creation. With implies association in the sense of free mingling with the others of a, of a community on terms of equality. That's why in Ezekiel, uh, in Zechariah 13 verse 7, God called him his equal, his fellow. Uh, so the Logos is on a level with and in communication with God. Uh, and here's some passages that you might want to look up in regard to that. Uh, just some quick passages. Not, I don't have anything thorough. We're just taking a glance at these things. But John 17, 5, Jesus prayed to his Father. What did he say? Glorify thou me, Father. I finished your work, he said. Glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee from the beginning, or before the world was, excuse me. I keep missing that. John 1.18. John, as he talks about the Logos, he gets to the finality of his prologue. And what does he say about him? His work? He said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, He has declared Him. So Jesus came as a declaration of the Father, didn't He? In fact, when you get to John 17, uh, verse, I think it's verse 6, it's right there in the early part, Jesus is, John 14, excuse me. Jesus is fixing to leave the earth by way of Calvary. And he knows the effect it's going to have on those men that he chose. And he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. That where I go, there you may come also. And in that context... The apostles are standing there and they said, well, before you go, show us the Father and that will be sufficient. And Jesus got a little bit upset with them. And I can see him talking through clenched teeth as he groaned over their immaturity at that point. And he said, have I been with you so long and you haven't seen the Father? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he said. And so Jesus, to you and I, to your eyes, to mine, uh, in your life and my life, what is Jesus? He's God. He came for that purpose to reveal the love of God, uh, the continuity of God's, uh, in everything about God, he came to reveal it. So when Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. And one other passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. That's the passage where Paul declared that Jesus accepted the terms of his humility. Jesus actually humiliated himself twice. And Philippians 2, 5 through 7 will tell you about it. He <coughs> humiliated, he humbled himself in heaven to become a man that's a pretty low estate isn't it for a creator of the universe to become a man a man in every respect the scriptures will tell us that he was tempted in all points like as we are you can't tempt a man unless he's able to take the temptation does that, what, does that tell you anything he stood as a man in this world Luke says that he come to learn his position in life, what he was made for, what he came to this earth for, because he came out of a, a manger 
a cradle. And he cried for milk like all babies do. He messed his diaper and had to have it changed like all little children do. He came into this world like you and I. He grew up and he, his mother had to tell him many times. and Well, she did. She had to by human nature. She had to tell him, listen, you're special because an angel come and told me that this pregnancy, you were to be called Jesus, which means Savior. You will save your people. And also you will be Emmanuel. And the angel interpreted it. He said, which means by uh, God with man. And don't you know that boy had to dig in the scripture to find out his mission and purpose? But he grew in wisdom and knowledge and in favor with, with all men. But he... he humbled himself first in heaven to become a man. And then as a man, he humbled himself to make his journey three and a half years after his ministry back to Jerusalem to be crucified for mine and your sins. Now there's many hundreds of other humiliations Jesus went through and humbled himself to. But those are the two major ones. And Philippians 2, 5 through 7 tells you. He humbled himself to become a man, to come to this world that he created. All right, so as we look at him personally in verse, uh, uh, here in verse 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, that statement uh, is the uh, assertion of deity. The Greek word theos, theos uh, that's translated God there, is employed here in the first clause without the article. When the article is used, uh, it is in the second uh, emphasis of the word is on individuality, God as a person. Without the article, the emphasis is on quality, God as a kind of being. Now, the reason I brought that up is because the Jehovah Witnesses, or excuse me, the Mormons, the Mormons, they had one fellow translate their Bible, retranslate it. And he didn't translate the whole thing. He just took John 1.1 and changed it. One fellow. Never has any translation in the Old Testament and the New Testament ever been translated by one fellow. The scriptures are called the Septuagint scriptures because Alexander the Great, uh, marching under the orders of God as he conquered the world in about 280 B.C., he left behind teachers to teach the Koine Greek, the common man's Greek language, to the world for universal trade purposes. And little did he know that uh, a few years later, God was going to speak to the world with the Koine Greek. God was behind it all and prepared it. And nothing happens that God doesn't either command it or allow it. And Alexander the Great, he... He... he uh, uh, he commissioned 70 Hebrew Greek scholars to translate the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures into the Koine Greek down in Alexandria, Egypt about 280 B.C. You can read about the history just a point in history but God was behind it. Incidentally, he's behind everything, isn't he? Bad times, good times, punishment, blessings, all of it. There's nothing in this globe, in this universe we know of, that happens without God's direct command or His allowance. You can take that to the bank. Does He know what's going on? <laughs> yeah, He does. 
He's in control of everything. And you want to know how deep his control goes? Well, Jesus spoke of the depth of his control. In Matthew, the sixth chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said he feeds the birds of heaven. <coughs> Those worthless little black birds that you see fly once in a while out, particularly out in uh, East Pasco, and they blot out the sun. There's so many of them. And there's another scripture that says that he knows every time one of the little fellows fall. Now that's concerning, isn't it? And Jesus didn't stop there. He said he dresses every lily in the field. You ever seen how many lilies are in the field? <laughs> Around the world? He dresses every one of them. Would Jesus want you to know that he dresses the, feet, the, the lilies and feeds the birds? Not necessarily, but he went to the extreme of showing God's concern <coughs> for this universe that he created, that he superintends. And so there's nothing happens down here without his direct command or his allowance. And what's God's purpose in His direct commands and His allowance? What is His main purpose? Why did He make the world? Why did He make the universe? Well, we could discuss that for next week, a whole week, uh, and just get it, it introduced. But why did He do that, basically? Redemption of men. Redemption. Redemption is His purpose. He didn't make this big old world for uh, playboys to go out and flaunt their appetites on all the young maidens. That ain't why God made this world. It's not running in its own chaotic speed. God didn't build the earth like a clockmaker, wind it up and then walk off or go on vacation and he's off in the distance just watching it saying, boy, look what's happened down there. He's in tune to feeding the birds, dressing the lilies. And you know what Jesus said after he explained that to us? He said, and how much greater are you than they? How much greater are you than the lilies and the birds? Oh, ye little faith. Man has little faith. Now, the complexity of our culture with everything else leaves us in doubt as to our value. You want to know why men commit suicide? They see no value. They see no purpose. Can God show them value and purpose? That's why we're up here preaching, isn't it? We're trying to manifest the magnitude of Almighty God, the creator of this universe. Um, well, I lost myself. <coughs> Nobody else does that, do they? Let's see the boldness of the hands that does that. You're, you're talking about the Jehovah Witnesses with one translator and then the Septuagint. How, uh, oh, Zim yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So here in John 1, in the original language, it says, and I put it in English for you, but it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And they translated it was a God. You see, they're making him less than God. That's what they're saying. And you can read uh, from... All of the scholars of the world, and every one of them will say in essence that that is a, a gross violation for a translator to put the, uh, the article A in there. He was God. And that's what that verse says in the original language. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was not a God. He was God. That's the point. 
But when they're teaching you, they want you to understand uh, from their doctrine that he was a created being. That's where they go with that. Anyway. Well, our time's up. Uh, I've got a few more things to say uh, about uh, prologue as we uh, go from verse 1 to verse 2 and 3. Uh, the word in creation but that'll be next week, so I'll mark it down here. Uh, now I realize we're going kind of slow, but we have to to learn these things. I don't mean to be ugly, but how much time do you spend on the toilet? And you know why I brought that up? Is because we spend more time on a toilet than we do worshiping Almighty God and studying His Word. We do. <laughs> Isn't that shameful? I wanted to impress you. That's why I use the toilet. And so, don't tend to get excited if we go over on our time. If the preacher goes a few minutes over time, don't let it bother you so bad. Just remember, you probably spend more time on the, on the throne scene, seat, the toilet, than you do studying the Bible. Not trying to insult anybody, just trying to get you to think. Thank you. Oh, that went on tape, too. <laughs>